I kind of feel like I only have enough faith bandwidth for one invisible person. Welcome to the Soma Podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Paul. Now that we've deconstructed our evangelical beliefs, we're trying to find a way forward to hold on to Christian faith and community in a post-Christian culture. Have you ever watched any horror movies that made you fearful or, you know, at the end of the movie, did you feel like you had to have the lights on? <laughs> you know, I think my first encounter with a horror movie was when I was 10 years old. And I don't know how I ended up getting a copy of this or seeing this. I think it was a VHS or some type of uh, old <laughs> tr- uh, track. Uh, I saw um, Halloween, the first one. And oh my God, oh, okay. it just one. scared the hell out of me as a kid. And I remember having just nightmares for a week. My parents never knew that I got a copy of this. I, I probably got it from a friend at school or something like that. And so you, you got a bootleg copy of <laughs> Halloween, <laughs> and that, that messed you yeah, up. Yeah, so that, that messed me um, up. I, I never really got back into horror films since then uh, until I was an adult. And then, you know, of course, as an adult, it's a totally different perspective. But, you know, as an adult, the only one that ever really kind of got to me was The Ring. I remember watching that going, oh, this does give you the eebie-jeebies. And the thing I don't like about horror is actually is that, you know, a true horror, there's no resolution at the end, right? Like evil always usually wins. And I just hate, I hate right. that feeling at the end, that unresolved, ah, I feel dark after that happens. This one movie, I, I when Alex and I watch movies, she always gets really scared, and then I always try to bug <laughs> her. We watched The Mothman Prophecies, which is about this winged moth creature. But what was really creepy about the mo- movie was, it says it's based on a true story, and there's this reporter, and he goes to this hotel room, and he's hearing these whispery voices, and he thinks he's seeing things in this hotel room. You know, you ever have that experience when you're in a space that's not your space and you don't feel completely comfortable and you're, you know, every noise and every sound and it's kind of creepy. Um, so there's something about that, you know, it's like if it's based on a true story or there's some level of supernatural, you know, not just a slasher film, but just something weird going on, like, you know, that you can hear voices or, or you, you know, spiritual uh, voodoo or whatever you want to call it. It, it can have that extra impact because you think, you know, what if it is real? What if there really are ghosts or spirits or things, you know, uh, that we can't see? Uh, there's something about horror movies, right, or scary movies. Like, what? Why do we? Why do we watch them? I, I think it just it just sort of makes you feel something, right? Like, I you just kind of want to feel alive, it, even 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 if it's evil. It kind of makes you just you know, uh, feel like it's palatable. Like it's, it's just something is real and something is making you uh, jump out of your seat. I, we just seem to really be attracted to stuff like that. Well, I, th- I think we all have uh, a sense that there, there's more going on than we understand or see. And horror movies, you know, uh, tap into that. And I think, you know, a lot of us walk around putting off any thought of our own death, right? And so horror movies bring that confrontation with your inevitable death right into the frame, you know. And so you're watching it, and it's, cha- you know, it challenges you to think about those those hidden um, fearful thoughts of your non-existence or the loss of control if there are these beings or demons or angels or whatever, it, it makes you feel suddenly unsettled because I don't have any control over any of that, right? Um, and I think that's mm-hmm. part of it. You know, the devil used to be a big part of my life, Mark. 
Uh, I think you've mentioned this before. I, a lot of my Christian background was in the charismatic sort of Pentecostal sort of you know wing of the uh, evangelical world. And um, charismatic, for people that don't know, it's just it comes from the Greek root, root words for spiritual gifts. And so that sort of emphasis in that part of the Christian world really focuses on spiritual gifts and that they're real and that they're for today. And so we used to really celebrate and pursue things like, you know, trying to prophesy or heal people or do those types of things. But it also meant that um, we had a relationship with the devil, which is kind of an odd thing to say. But I, I probably talked to the devil as much as I talked to God back in those years, you know. It's this something about, like, maybe having this common enemy that we all had, and uh, anything that kind of bad happened, or if you felt like there was some kind of oppression in your life, it would be very quick to get to a place where, you know, this was the devil, and we had to sort of resist it, and we had to sort of rebuke it and try to take control of it, right? And... uh and even there, there were a lot of experiences for me of um, that we used to call deliverance. I, I think the Catholics call it exorcism, for those of you who know that reference. But we would literally just do what we thought the Bible said to do. And that would be if there's somebody that was exhibiting real darkness in their life, we would try to cast the demons out of them. And I'll be honest, Mark, it, it, there was a, definitely a, a, a several, several of these type of sessions that I was a part of, that I even led. The, the earliest one was when I was a teenager and we were at camp, at a, at a Christian camp. And I was out um, down at the beach one night with some, a couple of friends. And this one girl said, you know, I, I really want to get close to God. I want to get close to Jesus, but something's blocking me. And I'm like, oh, she's like, what? So what? Like, tell me about yourself. And she was like, well, I guess I used to be uh, into Satanism and I accepted Satan into my life. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, oh, that's probably the blockage right there. And so um, we just started to pray for her. And honestly, like it was within seconds, she started to scream and she fell to the ground, like to the sand. We were on the beach and she started to like kick the sand and, and like scream and flip and turn. And it was it was completely unexpected. And so we called for like the leaders of the camp to come down and help us. And we spent hours just praying for this girl as she screamed. And, and it was just so it was kind of terrifying because it was the first time I'd ever experienced something like that. But at the same time, it was exhilarating. And, and there was this feeling, a powerful feeling in the sense that, you know, the evil was real or evil was palatable. But, you know, after uh, quite a while in the church and having seen these different types of scenarios, I, I did ultimately walk away with a bit of a, a sour taste in my mouth because I never really did see lasting results. You know, Mark, like even this girl, it was so sad, like about a year or two later, she ended up killing herself. Oh, and tough. I just, I got so disillusioned with like, does this, like, what is this? Does this even work? Are we helping? Are we making things worse? And so I, I really sort of stopped getting involved with that type of uh, deliverance session. Yeah, I've had a few, a few um, stories as well. But I do think just to kind of build off of what you're saying there, I, I don't think you can just... One prayer is not going to solve a person's problem who, if, who was a Satanist or whatever that meant to them. It probably was mostly about identity, but it tells you something about their choices. It tells you something about their mindset. I could guess they probably have some difficulties at home. So there is probably a whole bunch of behaviors and, and thinking that needs to be changed. And, and it could be that praying in that moment might have been helpful to them, but unless someone is... Um, 
helping them grow and that they're taking steps towards a more healthy life, they're probably not going to overcome um, whatever it is that was happening in their life. It takes it takes a process, right? Uh, and we can even make it worse, I think, by if we tell people that we're going to pray for you and it's just going to fix your problem instantly and it doesn't fix it, then that person may feel like, oh, okay, you know, I know I tell one story. I don't have a lot of deliverance stories, but I have one story. Where I went to um, a bar in the city one time with a friend at the time, and we were actually going there to find out about a gig. We were in this band together. We were going to play at this, uh, at this bar, uh, experimental music. And so the, we get to the bar, and there's almost nobody there. There's a woman sitting by herself, this middle-aged um, woman by herself. She's obviously a little bit inebriated. And so we're just, we're literally just standing by the bar talking to the bartender. And I hear this woman suddenly, what's this Jesus stuff? What's this Jesus stuff? And I, I look and she's staring right at us. And she kept saying, what's this Jesus stuff? So the, the first time with, I said, let's just, we'll go and sit over here. She gets up out of her chair and she comes right at us. And she, the whole time she's staring at us and she just keeps repeating that phrase, what's this Jesus stuff? And I honestly, I didn't know what to do, but she's like maybe six feet away from, from me. And something just in me, I just, I put out my hand and I said, stop in the name of Jesus. And she immediately stopped and her eyes glazed over. And I looked at my friend and I said, what do we do now? <laughs> and neither of us, we really didn't, we hadn't had anything like that before. But somehow the woman, we somehow got the woman to sit down and uh, we prayed with her, we talked with her. Um, she she seemed to know things about my friend, and he and it was a really weird conversation. It, it went on for about an hour, and then all of a sudden, at one point, she just got up and she ran out of the bar. I do think there is um, more going on than we can see often. I do think there's there's um, you know I, I personally think there is a supernatural dimension to reality. Um, I know we've talked a lot about the horizontal aspect, and we've tried to emphasize that in our podcast, but it's not a um, to me, it's not an, uh, a complete one thing or the other. I do think that there's more to reality than we can see, and there's a range of human experience that um, that, that can be very remarkable at times. You know, um, what we do with it and how we understand it probably depends a lot on our worldview. Uh, I think the listener ha- can probably uh, tell after a few episodes of listening to us that we we certainly do have some different angles and perceptions and perspectives. I think here's one where you and Mark, you and I kind of differ in our, our ideas. But um, it, as far as like the devil being a personal, sort of supernatural, invisible type of being, I, I do struggle with that. You know, it's, it's, I know people who knew me from the past probably think that's crazy because, you know, here I just told a story of casting out demons and, and, and speaking to the devil. Um, I, I do struggle with metaphysical beliefs. I've been very honest about that with you and the listeners. And I, and I think there are others who are listening to the podcast that might be like me. I kind of feel like I only have enough faith bandwidth for one invisible person. And I think, so God's that one right now. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle a second one. Uh, the other thing I guess I've really, I, I've really questioned is the utility of believing in that vertical view of, of this sort of sur- supernatural being. Like I, like I said, like, what do you do with an invisible person? Like, you you just talk to the air. Like, what else can you do, right? Like, so I, I remember a lot of my language was, I, I bind you, I rebuke you, I cast you down in the name of Jesus, and there's just a lot of talking to the air. 
And and, and then in terms of really making lasting changes in people's lives, that's where I, I think I really got disillusioned. But I think what I'd like to say about this before we move on, because I don't think we're going to really talk a whole lot about the devil in, in that way. Um, I, I, I don't know if you have to believe it. You know, I don't know. I don't think you have to believe that the devil is a supernatural being. Um, and for those that struggle with metaphysical beliefs, don't let that hold you back from faith, because I still think it all works. I still think it holds together, even in the Bible, um, horizontally and in, in, in other ways, uh, so that the language and the metaphor of Scripture, like, it all still works. Like, you think, you know, there's words like the serpent, the dragon, the beast, Satan, adversary, slanderer, accuser. Like, we, we might talk about some of these words. Uh, devil or demon or evil one. You could say that all of those words are very powerful descriptions of the dark side of human nature, right? Like the evil within us. I even say, like, it's worse than a supernatural being. It, the, the devil is us. <laughs> Satan is us. And that, that's even worse. And, uh, and I think that you can, you can look at the stories of the Bible and look at the metaphors in the language, and they're very, very powerful they are very powerful to describe the evil that we experience in this life and in this world, and it still works at the end of the day. And I think that we're obviously not going to um, be able to say anything that just categorically proves the existence of the devil, and that's not the point of our podcast tonight. But I would say that I personally think everybody is in a spiritual battle, that there is um, a battle you know, the, that, that affects how we think, affects um, you know, our emotions, and so there's two, there's kind of two aspects of how I see the, the, um, the battle against evil or a battle against the invisible spiritual. And that's, it does affect us in terms of um, our, our mind and our heart and how we think, how we respond. And it's a battle that we all, all fight in one way or another. People who feel guilty or people who feel um, depressed or all those things, those can also be described in, in a sense as part of that spiritual battle. And whether you believe there's a demon on your shoulder making that happen or not, it, it is, um, it's a struggle that starts internally. Um, in Ephesians 6.12, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know, that's right from Ephesians. That certainly sounds like the writer believes in this hidden uh, world where there's powers and forces and angels. And uh, I've been listening recently to an Orthodox podcast and their view of, of how the the world, spiritual world works. And they, they believe in, um, yeah, they have this whole sense of even a hierarchy of there, there's there's the Lord of Lords, there's, there's Jesus and there's God, but there's also lesser... Um, uh, you know, entities, lesser gods. And you see that in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament definitely, there's, a, there's, there's gods that are worshipped that are not the God, which is one of the reasons why they say the Lord of Lords, in other words, the God above all the other gods, right? In, in the Old Testament, they have Baal, they have Ashtaroth, they have these local gods that are worshipped that control areas of... of, of of that ancient land and they control the people who live in those areas so in a sense um, one way to think about uh, the influence perhaps of uh, 
the hidden world or of evil is that it can affect um, the places that we live. You know, we've all been to places or I've been to places where you get that sense that there's something's not safe here or something's not right here, you know. Um, back in the 80s and 90s, it used to be like the spiritual warfare movement. They would go into places and they would identify the demons that are affecting downtown Winnipeg and they would pray over them. You're probably familiar with that. Um, yeah, I did that. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think it's unbiblical, though. You know, it just maybe is a question of how do we understand that now. So in the book of Revelation, it lists all of these places. It says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, um, to the angel of the church in Pergamon, and he says, you know, that's um, uh, where the seat of Satan is. So they, in the ancient world, they, they did have a picture of spiritual forces uh, having influence over regions, over uh, places where the, the early church was being formed, as well as, you know, throughout the ancient world. Um, we don't have that sense or that picture anymore, but I know I've been to places where... I feel less safe. When I was in London uh, a few years ago, we got lost. And almost everywhere I went in London, I, I felt totally fine. But one particular night, uh, my wife and I got lost, and we ended up in this back lane. And I just suddenly had this really uncomfortable feeling like, we should not be here. We need to get out of here. Um, you know, what is that? Is that a sense of you're picking up things that you cannot see, that are influencing that environment, and you realize you you realize that I should not be there. Let, let me just let me just make one one last counterpoint on this topic, Mark. I, I know what you're saying. Um, I mean, I was I was there in the '80s and the '90s too, um, just trying to discern the you know the the strong man of Winnipeg or the whatever the the ruling spirit and trying to pray and talk to the air and and bind that influence. Um, and I think there are other ways to understand that. Um, I think evil seems to scale, right? I think not just evil, but just just human behavior, right? There, there's a con it's almost like a contagion, and then and people pick up on things, and there is a spirit in a place. And I think that language that the Bible gives us is powerful language, and it should be used. I guess my little pushback and my one last plea here on this one is uh, it, people tend to use anthropomorphisms, right? Like. Anthropomorphism is the idea of giving human traits to animals or objects or non-human things. We do this all the time because when we do that, it actually helps us understand things. It's very impactful. It's, it, 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 it really elicits emotion when, when we think of things as being human-like or um, personal. we assign personhood to something. It makes it real. I mean, Disney's been doing this for a long time with animals, and um, Pixar has done it with toys, and um, even with emotions, right? The, the movie Inside Out, where they gave different emotions a little personality, and it really gave some powerful insight into our own psychology and emotion. There's a documentary on Netflix right now called The Social Dilemma. I think a lot of people have probably watched it or are watching it, and it sort of talks about the dangers of social media, and in particular, the algorithms that are behind it, right, and that are really pushing on our behaviors. And the way they show it in the documentary is they give the algorithms personhood, right? They There's this actor that has a different, three different actor, no, sorry, the same actor, three different characters. He has a different haircut and wears different clothes. And while they show those scenes of like giving the algorithm uh, personal or human traits, it actually really is powerful. Like it really helps you understand how the algorithms are changing our behavior. So I think it's a very normal human thing to do 
to like personify things. And I think the Bible writers are doing that. And I think we should do that. It really helps us feel the impact of the things that we're trying to understand. And I think that's what might be happening as well. Like it, it makes sense to say Hitler and the Nazis were possessed by the devil himself, right? Like that's strong language and it, it just really des- describes the feeling of that, of that evil that we're, we're witnessing. Yeah, we're, we're pushing up against the nature of spiritual reality. Um, you know, so just one other sort of t- thought here is just when you think about your own consciousness, there's a, a huge, you know, a scientific rush to try to understand consciousness and brain studies. And it, it's a little bit of a challenge because if you say that consciousness is, um, and I'm grossly oversimplifying, is just an emergent property of your physical brain, then you end up going down a road that basically says that what you think is completely conditioned by your brain. But And there are people who are now going the opposite direction saying, well, maybe consciousness is a factor of everything that exists, right? Um, because it's something that you can't see. It, you don't even know for sure that I have, a, I, we're having this conversation, mm-hmm. I mean, we're getting kind of philosophical, but you, you have to make the assumption that I'm conscious. I make it that you have one, and we're having this conversation. There's, mm-hmm. It's invisible, so right. we can't say that invisible things don't exist and don't influence us because they do. Um, you know, I, I'm going to borrow here from another podcast I listened to, um, Jonathan Peugeot. He has um, a podcast. He talks a lot about, uh, it's called The Symbolic World. He, one of his podcasts, he talks about the existence of Santa Claus. Does Santa Claus exist? Well, in a strict literalist sense, no, Santa Claus does not exist. <laughs> but millions of people every year celebrate the coming of Santa Claus. They teach their children about him. They buy gifts, you know, and they pretend that he delivers the gifts. You can even go and meet Santa Claus downtown in a normal non-COVID year, you know. There's many ways in which Santa Claus uh, exists. (laughs) So does he have influence? Does he um, affect our behavior? Yes, he does. So um, there's something that happens collectively when we all uh, believe in something that perhaps that gives it a kind of existence. Um, I'm not saying that that's what I believe entirely about about Satan. I just, I don't know, and I don't think we're going to come to a conclusion on that. But I think spiritual reality is influenced by the collectivism that happens between people. Um, I've seen it in the classroom. I've had classes that were just very difficult to teach. You know, when I first started teaching, I had difficult classes. I would go early and I would go through my room and I would pray over every seat and particularly the individuals who I was having difficulty with. And, and I felt like uh, I had a scripture from the Old Testament, you know, uh, wherever you set, set your feet there, I'll give you. And I, so I would just go around my classroom and I would pray and I would ask God to just give me authority over, over the classroom, which sounds very much like the traditional walk around your city and pray and remove, you know, whatever spiritual forces. It, it prepared me mentally, emotionally, spiritually, to um, to deal with that classroom. I don't need to do that anymore because of my own personal growth, and I very rarely do that, but I do think that different classrooms have different spirits, and it, it, it really comes about based on who's in there. If you get several people who are immature, who are arrogant, who are just undisciplined, don't really want to be there, that gives you one kind of classroom, and you're going to have a difficult uphill battle. I, you know, you'll have people who will challenge you for 
who's in charge of the classroom even. You could have another classroom, very next slot, peaceful. Everyone's just working, doing their work, easy to manage, easy to deal with. There's a different spirit, different sense of how that, that collective group works. And so mm-hmm. I think in some sense that is uh, a representation of how the spiritual reality uh, kind of works, you know, um, it, the Bible even says where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. So when two people who or three people come in a small group and pray, there is again a spirit, something that can happen. Um, and it's, it's a collective thing. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> pardon me, um, I think we should talk probably more about that collective energy, that collective thing when it comes to sort of when it comes to evil. But just before we get to that, Mark, you brought up the, I'm glad you brought up the idea of consciousness because I was thinking about that. Um, I don't think we can talk about this topic of evil and even the devil without maybe referencing, at least from a biblical perspective, without referencing the, the first story uh, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's sort of where it kind of comes up for the first time. There's even a serpent in the garden that uh, that Christians has have um, have always sort of assigned to being the presence of the devil or the evil one in that in that story, uh, and I and I knew we were talking about this topic today, and I, I wanted to give it a bit of thought. Um, and you know, th- we call that story of Adam and Eve in the garden like the fall of mankind, right? And I'm I'm convinced that the fall was inevitable, right? Like. In fact, I'm, I'm going to be so bold to even suggest that the fall was even a part of God's plan. I mean, think about it. God puts a tree in the middle of the garden, right in the middle, like under the spotlight, and then he says to Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree. <laughs> don't touch. Or you can eat from any tree in the garden, but you can't touch this one. And then, um, you know, knowing that human beings are incredibly curious, and the minute you tell somebody, you know, don't touch that or don't do that, that's the first thing we're going to want to do. And then to top it all off, to make it even worse, yeah, there's a serpent there. His whole job was to, like, entice them into eating the fruit. So it it just makes you think, like, obviously God knew this was going to happen. It was all sort of set up. And it kind of made me feel like uh, what we talked about in our uh, Suffering Tourist episode, that... A part of this dynamic of suffering and a part of this dynamic of even experiencing evil is just that it's a part of the spiritual journey for the children to leave the comfort and the protection of of the parent, of the father, that walled sort of garden, and have to go and make their own choices, learn their own hard lessons, Um, Because that seems to be exactly what happens here. Uh, Adam and Eve have to go out and learn things the hard way, right? And and sort of sets that in motion. I I agree that's the result. I don't know. I mean, that's another unanswerable question. Did God, I mean, yes, of course, God is aware of every possible outcome. So he would have had to know that the tree would create that outcome. And there's so many, you know, it's it's like there's so many timelines there. And I don't think we will be able to follow them all in this in this podcast. Um, I know I've again. I always bring a lot of things back to the classroom because that's where I observe human behavior. And I I have in my classroom a giant red button, you know, 
And uh, I had two of them actually, and they used to control like some uh, tools that were in there that were removed at one point. And so every, uh, you know, every grade nine student wants to press the red button. And the more I, you know, I'll even say to them, you know, sometimes I'll play with them and say, yeah, you can press it, but if you press the button, you know, and then they're like, what, what, what's going to happen? You know, and, you know, and, and in the early days when I worked there, the button actually turned off an entire bank of computers, which is very bad for the computer. But it, since it's been disconnected, it's like the little buttons at the traffic stops. I don't think they really do anything, but we have this need to, to push, right? Um, if it looks like we can push the button, we're going to push it. Um, yeah. So I, I do think that part of the role perhaps of, starting with the fall it's it's that part of the story that that tells us um something catastrophic has happened and we're going to need um we're going to need some help or some salvation to get out of the mess that we're in so there's all of these symbols and intertwining stories and evil is intertwined with the story and not just external evil but evil inside of us um so I see we've kind of talked briefly about the evil affects the environment and maybe location. And I think that's, you know, if, if you, I think liberal, uh, liberal thinking people, probably, you know, the idea of systemic racism and, and, or poverty and all those things, those could be construed as evil, social evils affecting um, environments. Um, I think conservatives tend to emphasize personal evil and the responsibility of the individual to overcome that internal battle. And I, I personally do believe that while there's obviously push and pull from both sides of the equation, the way forward is for individuals to overcome their own personal uh, internal e struggle with temptation, of, you know, evil. And, um, in Romans seven nineteen, it says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, that I keep doing. So that's the Apostle Paul talking about, um, you know, this internal struggle of wanting to be good, but failing to do good. And anyone that's decided, yes, I would like to change my life, I would like to do the right things, knows about the internal struggle. It's when you don't care, you just do whatever you want, you don't recognize the struggle, right? So that internal struggle of evil, I think, is something that if someone wants to seek God and wants to... Um, wants to change their life, they have to re reconcile with that internal, um, you know, that internal battle that's happening. I was thinking of, the, you know, the story of Jesus and Satan. Um, when the first thing Jesus does in his early ministry is he gets called into the desert and he has a, a for, you know, he's in the desert for 40 days. He's hungry. Um, it says angels come and attend to him eventually. But before that, he has a showdown with the devil and the devil pre presents three temptations to him. The first temptation is, you know, turn these stones to bread So, because he was hungry after 40 days. The second temptation was throw yourself down from the temple and the angels will, will come and they will, they will lift you up, right? And then the third temptation was worship me, the devil, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. So those are the three temptations. And I think in many ways, those are the same three temptations we all face. First being appetite. The second being the desire for attention and popularity and influence. And the third for power, you know, having control and, and ruling over. And so um, I know which of those three I, I tend to struggle with. And I think we all have one of the, on that list that we tend to struggle with. Um, 
unless you are able to overcome those in your own spiritual growth, you will be unable to help anybody else. So after Jesus wins the battle with the devil and overcomes those three primary temptations, he leaves the desert, and from then on, that's when he begins his public ministry. It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So something shifted in him where he, in a sense, gained the authority needed to go and push Satan or the devil out of the lives of other individuals because he had solved that temptation. He had he'd met the temptation, overcome it, and now he was ready to fulfill his public, public role. Yeah, those three temptations really make sense. So Jesus does this in the wilderness, and he kind of succeeds where maybe Adam and Eve failed. I want to just go back to the garden for a second, because the two things you said about, one about Jesus' temptation, and then about consciousness, I didn't get to riff on that a bit. Um, I think that that's kind of the same three temptations that Adam and Eve faced, right? Like they 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 saw it says that they saw that the f- uh, that the tree looked that the fruit looked really good like th- they were hungry right and and so there's that sort of appetite one uh, and that the fruit looked really great so there was sort of a real desire for it um, and it, that it could make them be wise and be like God so it, it came back into that whole idea of power and um, and prestige and so you can sort of see the same like you said it's the age old uh, temptation going on there um, but. I, I do like the idea, and I think the first person I heard this from was Jordan Peterson, um, where he, he talked about how this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and this whole story uh, really is it's kind of an ancient way of describing how human beings became, how human beings like became self-aware, right? Like uh, they became conscious, um, you know, waking up, um, and it, like it says language in that story, their, their eyes were opened, right? And then they realized they were naked. So there was sort of the sense of like self-consciousness and self-awareness. Uh, and then they started to understand the, like they could model the future, right? They, they started to understand that they would die and that they would have to work hard and it would be hard life and there'd be pain and labor. And there was a sense of like, life isn't easy and then we die. It's very terrible, but it kind of comes along for the ride with consciousness, right? And self-awareness. I don't think my dog is like sitting there wondering, you know, what day he's going to die. I don't think he's thinking about that or he's, he's even aware of that. And so this idea of like the knowledge of good and evil or experiencing good and evil, it actually comes along with consciousness or being self-conscious or self-aware. And there's this thing called the theory of mind where... It's this ability that human beings have to infer another's mental state or emotion. So like I'm looking at you, Mark, and I can kind of guess what you might be thinking or what you might be feeling in a particular situation because I could go, hey, if I was in that situation, this is how I would feel. So we're able to like infer another person's mental state or emotion. And that mechanism that comes along uh, with being conscious and aware of ourselves, that's the same mechanism or circuitry that, that, that we can get empathy from, right? Like, so I can really put myself in your shoes and understand you and have compassion for you. It's, but it's the same circuitry that I, that I would have when I want to get revenge, right? Or when I want to do harm. If I know what could cause you pleasure and good, I also know what could hurt you because I can think, I can think from that theory of mind you know, I could project that on you. So you have the same capacity for good and evil, this knowledge of good and evil that comes along with 
with the fact that we are conscious beings. And this does really make sense when you think of things like, you know, the golden rule that Jesus taught where he said, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's really kind of speaking to that theory of mind. Imagine how uh, they would feel, how you would feel if you were them and, and vice versa. And even the greatest commandment where Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Again, that's kind of playing back to that theory of mind. We are capable of doing wonderful things and we're capable of doing evil things. And it kind of comes from that same source of this of experiencing you know good and evil and being conscious creatures and and i would say also wanting things too and and uh, because you become aware I've, I've often thought like adolescence is in a sense a recreation of that original fall because you suddenly become extremely aware of your own sense of who you your own limitation and other people around you and i've you know i i i've see all the time students who are just seem painfully over aware and i think when you first really grow in your conscience is really started awareness is growing you, you can be overly sensitive right and so some of these um, ways of describing satan as well like the accuser so just saying the wrong word can seem like the the weightiest accusation to you know to someone who is just self-aware and uncomfortable in their own skin and struggling with feeling uh, maybe ugly or feeling unintelligent or unwanted so you're aware and you, and you and essentially you feel naked and so in the story they cover themselves with fig leaves right and and the fig leaves are an attempt, a human attempt, to create an identity, a covering, so that I will not be exposed. And I think that's adolescence in a nutshell, right? And in that story, the, the solution, though, is not the fig leaves, because those are always um, imperfect. They don't really cover perfectly. So in that story, God comes a, and, and takes an animal skin and covers um, Adam and Eve, which speaks to the need for an identity that comes from from God, basically, that the provision that is in Christ, it's a foreshadowing of Christ. So that when we are clothed with Christ, we, in a sense, come into our own, and our awareness or our consciousness is able to function because we're not overwhelmed by this this inner evil struggle, this, you know, this desire to be good, also a desire to, uh, at times to be evil. That struggle is brought into, uh, is overcome through Christ. Adam and Eve, that experience of becoming aware and of being naked and not measuring up, that's something that we experience as we grow and develop, right? And we need, um, God provides the resources to, uh, through Christ to overcome that. Whereas Satan is the, called call the accuser, <laughs> And there's always accusations that bring guilt, that bring judgment. And when, you, when you're dealing with guilt and you're dealing with judgment and you're dealing with the sense that you don't measure up, you know that your covering is not working properly and that you are um, essentially under spiritual attack. You know, understand that in the traditional way or the way that we're talking. It's, I think it's two sides of the same coin. Um, that individuals under spiritual attack are going to feel judgment. They're going to feel accusation. They're going to feel that they don't measure up. And the solution to that is not try harder or work harder. It's shift into a different way of thinking, and that's, that's connecting with Christ.
See how powerful these ancient stories are, man. Like, like we we think the ancient writers of scripture or anyone from you know two thousand years ago or four thousand years ago is primitive and doesn't have anything to teach us, and that's just not true. I mean, it was it's so sophisticated and brilliant to like transmit these sacred truths and these supreme truths in these stories. I think they were just super observant, right? And, and, and you know, and like we s- talked about in the Bible episode, these writings are God-breathed, like they are inspired. So you have this old, old story that still speaks to us today. And everything you said was awesome. I mean, that voice of the serpent that's, you know, slandering us and deceiving us. It's, I mean, it's been with us from the beginning. Our attempt to try to cover that sort of shame and that, that self-awareness and awkwardness with our own, you know, attempts that that don't that don't do the job, but getting that identity from G, from God is. I mean, I can't believe they coded all this in this story from thousands of years ago, and and the serpent was there right from the beginning. I mean, the serpent uh, was an ancient predator to to early humans, right? That the serpent represents danger, and then that that predator came to represent any type of danger, and even the danger from within ourselves, and that that accusing, lying, sort of um, slanderous sort of voice has been a part of our psychology from the beginning, right? And I mean, the serpent played with words and sort of partial truths. Like he started with like, you know, what, you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? And she's like, no, 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 we can. There's just one we can't eat. And just how subtle and cunning and how you start with some truth, but you twist. it's twisted. It's like a trickster, right? And, um, you know, the Bible uses language like the devil is the father of lies or the devil comes like an angel of light. So it seems like on the surface, this is like good and from God, but then there's something behind it that's that's dark. Uh, there's another expression that says that the, that the devil is the dece- the one who deceives the whole world. So you see all this happening in the garden and 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 all these seeds of of uh suspicion right like did god really say you can't trust him he's just keeping something from you and these are the voices I, and and you know someone might say where does this come from uh and there and then i guess that's the theory here that we're going back and forth on but whatever wherever it comes from it's with us like it's a fellow traveler and it's in our psychology and people are so susceptible to those types of voices and it's really causes a lot of damage in, in people's lives. And we're hoping that maybe in this episode, we could get to some, maybe some light and some, some things that maybe can help people understand, uh, and get past these, these, um, parts of our nature. I mean, I think you're describing this spiritual battle, right? That we all, if, if you get serious about wanting to change and you get serious about seeking God, you're going to have to face that inner, um, battle you know, we've talked a lot about the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are described as whitewashed tombs. You know, um, they're they're outwardly uh, they they perform outwardly to show their how righteous and how good they are, but there's no inner transformation, and there's simply no way to um, to move forward in a spiritual life without that inner transformation. Jesus talks about clean the inside of the cup. You know, so our in our battle with the temptation and our battle with uh, the corrupting influence of evil, the way to overcome that is through that inner transformation. And that comes through, you know, the Bible uses symbols like light, um, cleansing, you know, of water, um, cleansing through blood. Like those are all pictures of ways that God uh, transforms us. Um, 
and I, and I, I would say they're not just symbols. I, I don't want to send the impression that I, I believe they're just symbols. I, I do think that there's things going on in reality that we're, we're talking around, um, you know, but that have a reality. And I've, I've experienced them. I've experienced being prayed for. And um, I, I was prayed for one time by this elderly couple um, who was at a, a meeting set up with them uh, through um, a prayer ministry. And I went and I got prayed for. And they were, they were fantastic. They prayed for me. And um, one of the things they identified was just, you know, just a sense of um, heaviness and and. and oppression from family issues and they prayed for me and I literally felt things lifting off of me it felt like weights got lifted off of me and my whole physiology um, changed you know and I, I've talked in other episodes about working through my family issues and and um, you know I was um, was angry and and bitter and and you know from family issues that had affected me for most of my life. But when I got some healing from that, I actually felt my physiology change. I felt my thinking change. And I'm, I'm still working. I don't want to give the impression I have it all solved. But I, I think that's that inner transformation. As it happens, um, it's not just a thinking thing, but there's a thinking that, can, that, that unlocks other changes, you know, um, Another Jordan Peterson reference, he talks about um, possession as ideological possession. And that was the first, when I heard him say that, I really clicked something in me. What he basically says is ideas can possess people. And, um, you know, I think you, if you have ideas that are possessing you, like, I want to worship Satan. I've met people who, you know, kind of like gleefully say they want to worship Satan. And I've, I, you know, I've met people in the occult and talk with them. And I had interest in that when I was younger and so forth. And it's, it's not, it, it represents something in their life. It's a desire for power. It's, it's maybe a desire to be different, to be an individual, but that's a bad set of ideas. You know, putting yourself first is a bad set of ideas. It's going to lead to fruit. I know that's a Bible word, an outcome in your life that you're going to eventually be unhappy with. If you just live for yourself, you're going to find out it's going to lead to a bad outcome in your life and you're going to be unhappy. The wrong ideas can possess you in a sense and, um, and, and it will lead you down a path that does not bring you into light, does not bring you the kind of uh, freedom that you're looking for. And in a sense, it's evil, it's corrupting, it's going to corrupt you. The right set of ideas can lead you down the, uh, a better path. And I think ideas that are centered in Christ... Um, that those ideas can lead to transformation. They can lead to, you know, Bible says to walk in the light. If you walk in the light, you're basically, be, you know, experience that freedom from sin. That's where God's spirit is, is in the light. In other words, just being honest about your inner struggle leads to more freedom than covering it up, posturing, hiding, pretending, and so forth. Yeah, that that obsession with an idea that leads to a, like a possession of ideology that that's scary. That's scary stuff, Mark. Like, I mean, I I kind of get crimes of passion, right? Like, I think any human being can relate to. If you walked in on something and you saw um, someone you love, your wife or your kid being hurt, I mean, I I know that I'd be capable of of violence, right? I'd be capable of even killing. Uh, but this thing of like 
what do you you know what do you do with previously normal people who you know would never sort of cross that line? They would be extremely reluctant to inflict pain on anybody, let alone let alone kill anybody. And then they're they're brought to this state where they're actually able to kill, right? Um, that takes repetitive brainwashing and coercion, uh, coercion, and and um, you know enough exposure to these ideologies and these obsessions where you dull people's emotional response and you overcome their reticence to cross that line. I mean, we've seen so many examples of group identity that can neutralize empathy, right? It's like a group contagion where you dehumanize a certain segment of your population and you're obsessed with this ideology and it leads to this sort of possession you're talking about. And you see it in, you know, things like what happened with Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. And, well, there's so many present day examples of that. That's scary stuff. Well, and yeah, and Jordan, I have listened to Jordan Peterson in person, and he, you know, he brought brought up the idea. Most people think that they would not be the Nazi; they would be on the good guy side. But that, you know, chances are most it would be the other way around. Right? The, you know, why was a country like Germany, who gave birth to the Reformation through Luther, and you know, um, you know the history of the church in that country. I mean, and, that, and critics point that out and say, well, how come, you know, this, this country gave birth to the, uh, you know, the Protestant Reformation. How does it go from that to um, Nazi Germany, you know? And so somewhere along the line, bad ideas possessed the culture mm-hmm. so, and, and became animated in the person of, of Hitler. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first started hearing about the end times, and I, I don't really want to get into that topic here. You, you know, you talk about the Antichrist, right? Um, which would be a man possessed essentially by Satan. Um, you have Hitler, who, you know, when I first came across those ideas, I'm like, you know, so you have a guy named Hitler who wants to exterminate all of the Jews and actually managed to kill a lot of people. And, you know, he, he actually was really kind of a nobody, I think, at the beginning of his life. And somehow along his trajectory, um, he became Hitler, you know. So how does that happen? What, you know, and if you've ever seen any early um, rallies where in the Nuremberg rallies and whether, you know, people are just out there and just all of the the intensity of it and him, you know, preaching, essentially preaching. And it, it's just filled with this violent energy and is that not a personification or a manifestation of evil? Absolutely. It's, it's terrible. It's scary stuff. You know, Mark, we can't have this episode end like a traditional horror where people walk away feeling like they need a shower and they're scared to turn off their lights at night. So uh, I th- I'd like to sort of um, wind up here with um, some of the uh, ideas around good, uh, good sort of triumphing over evil. And and even the biblical concept of the kingdom of God. I, I just had a few thoughts about this because um, I think um, in the end, like every classic story, this is a, a, a classic battle between good and evil. And the biblical concept of the kingdom of God in, uh, from the Jews' perspective and their expectation, uh, especially when Jesus came um, at the end of the uh, Old Testament, was that they described the present world as the present evil age. And it was literally labeled that, evil, the present evil age. And the idea would be the Messiah would come and would split history in half and bring in the age to come, right? 
uh, and the present evil age would be marked by the sort of the knowledge of, of sickness and death and oppression and all these negative evil things we've been talking about. But the age to come would be the exact opposite. It would be like a great reversal, right? And bring it would be it would be bring healing and it would bring life and um, and sort of undo uh, all the the negative things that we associate with this present evil age. Well, when Jesus shows up, the very first thing that comes out of his mouth is uh, the kingdom of heaven is here, right? And when he said that, everyone was sort of going, "Okay, wow, this is quite a quite a bold statement." So, is this what's going to happen? And but what ended up happening, and, and this is why you know a lot of Jews didn't go for what Jesus was offering was instead of the Messiah splitting time in half and ending one age and starting a new age, it was like the age to come started on a separate timeline. So you have like two timelines going at the same time. The present evil age did not end. It it continued, but a new timeline, a new reality began. And so now you have the, the, the age to come and the present evil age sort of going parallel together. And, and between these two lines is this tension. It's this conflict, right? We have the stuff like Jesus saying that it's like the, there's, the, there's the wheat and the tares or the weeds. They grow together. Uh, he, said, he said the wheat were the, the sons of the kingdom and the tares were the sons of the evil one, right? Uh, and, and he talked about how the kingdom was like a little uh, mustard seed, a small little thing that over time grows into this massive tree or a, or a little bit of yeast in a lump, and it slowly permeates the whole lump. So there's this idea of this progressive and gradual growth of the kingdom of God. So the question then is, what is the kingdom of God? And when when John the Baptist sent people to Jesus, because John the Baptist was thrown into prison, and he was like, go, go ask him if he really is the one. He was having some doubts. And they said, Jesus, are you the one? And he said, look, uh, tell him what you see. You, you see the blind see, the lame walk, leprosy is cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor get good news spoken to them. So he's saying that the works of the kingdom is are the works that bring healing, right? That bring healing, that bring relief to suffering, that lift people from their terrible situations. And doing those types of things is what, what I think... Uh, the Bible ta- means when it says, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's this tension. There's good versus evil. And I thought for a long time, you know, maybe where science, you know, where science kind of stepped in was like, okay, there were a lot of vertical promises going on for centuries from the church of some type of relief or some type of coming of the kingdom with a vertical view. Uh, and, and then maybe, you know, a, a lot of these scientists were believers in God, but they said, you know, maybe there's some answers in the material world. Let's look there to see if we could relieve suffering or, or figure out how things can work. And so we have things like penicillin and we have, you know, um, even plumbing, you know, has saved millions of lives. And we've saved uh, the infancy death rate has, has uh, decreased drastically in many, many places. Um, people are living longer. A lot of this has happened through science, but I say that it's still kingdom work, that the stuff Jesus did, yeah, he, it seemed like he did it supernaturally, but the, the, the message there, the point there is when we relieve uh, human suffering, when we bring healing, when we lift people out of poverty, these are the works of the kingdom, and this is good triumphing over evil, right? It says about Jesus that he went about doing good and healing all those oppressed by the devil, so there's this conflict and this tension, the present age 
and the age to come happening simultaneously. Yeah, that's really good. And so um, I think we would almost start talking here about what we mean by that, but probably another episode. But this idea that some people think the world is getting worse and worse, but I think the evidence shows it's improving. And that there's always a mixture, though. Like you said, right up until the end of the age, the Bible says there'll be a mixture. There'll be wheat and tares. There'll be people who are, you know, like in, like every Facebook feed, there'll be people who are trying to be positive, and there'll be people that are trying to troll you and, and throw you off and, and just, you know, and de- derail what you're trying to say. And, and, and history's like that. There's a back and forth. And not everybody, I, I don't think everyone's playing on the same team. Some people are just out for themselves. And unfortunately, that creates the potential for more evil. Um, I would add to what you're saying is um, I think Jesus is integral to that because you could just say, well, let's get the list of all the right things we should do and do that list. And, and, and that, I think, is some of the risk that, that we face in our current culture. It's like we're trying to figure out what, what, should we, what are all the right things to do, what's you know, the right side of history and all this kind of stuff you hear, as if we could just force everybody into um, – you know, right thinking and right behavior. And I, I don't think you can do that. That will lead to more death, a more, uh, more oppression, a more, um, you know, more evil. I think the transformation has to happen in individuals. And it's not just a set of right thoughts, but it's, it's learning to grow in grace. It's learning to grow in the ability to be empathetic, to respond to people with, you know, Love, essentially, it fulfills the law. So if you can learn to love people, you are essentially fulfilling the law. Um, that can be challenging. In James, um, the book of James, it said, Submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Um, we all have some responsibility to submit to God and to resist the devil. As we are part of, uh, we have to reconcile and figure out that fight for ourselves so that we can also be part of what's happening collectively. I agree. I think we need that submission, Mark. Like I think we, I think religion and faith serves a very, very important purpose. And I don't think we can just strip out the rules without, without God or strip out the rules. We we can't just take the things Jesus said without the person of Christ himself, you know, and, even when, you know, he taught us to pray, you know, it's amazing. Most of that prayer is kind of dealing with the, with the, with good and evil. You know, he, he says, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's like, it's like prayer helps you focus on this idea of, I want to bring more good into the world. I want to bring more, more uh, healing into the world. And he goes on to like, forgive, you know, forgive our trespasses that we forgive those who who trespass against us. And that's dealing with that inner demon, right? Or that inner devil of, of just, you know, taking that, that theory of mind, you know, like I'm going to let things go. I'm going to receive forgiveness. And if I can receive forgiveness, then I'm going to be able to now give that forgiveness out to other people. And, he, and then he ends with lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So I think you're right about, you know, having practices, having the practice of prayer, having the practice of meditation, reading scriptures, reading Jesus's words, because what it does is it sort of retrains our minds. It settles our hearts. It settles our spirits to be able to deal with this, you know, this evil that we face, this serpent that we face on a daily basis. And I, and I think that's probably a good, good place to end it off is that we have to we have to enter into our own uh, connection with God and our own transformation process so that we can be part of the wheat and not the tares. Mm-hmm.